Our text this morning comes from John chapter 21. It's on page 907 if you happen to be using one of our uh, pew Bibles, chair Bibles, row Bibles. We still don't know what to call those. Let me also say that if you don't have uh, a Bible and a translation that is um, easy for you to understand and helpful, then we would invite you to take one of ours as our gift. Uh, This morning, we're starting a five-week series on the vision of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. And some of you are thinking, I didn't didn't know we had a vision. You know, we're just, I mean, what does that mean? We're we're just just being the church. And, And that's sort of an okay impulse, actually. We are trying to be the church. But this is an attempt for us to draw out a little bit of what does it, what are we trying to accomplish? What does it mean for us to be the people of God in this place, in Williamsburg, Virginia, in this particular church? What does it mean for us to be? What is God, in fact, calling us to be? Okay, so let me read for you our vision statement. You'll find this on the inside cover of your bulletin. Some of you might notice that we started printing this a few months ago, and this is the first time we've ever said anything about it from up front, so here we go. Uh, this was this vision statement for our church was adopted by the session last fall. So here we go. Let's let's read this again on this in, on the uh, inside cover of your bulletin. <clears throat> Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church seeks to be a community that both glorifies and enjoys God in all that we do. Together we are pursuing authentic worship of Christ, a growing reliance on the gospel of grace, deep connection with one another and faithful service to the whole of Williamsburg and the world. Okay, over the next few weeks, we're going to take different parts of that and talk about what does that really mean. If that's, that's who we think we're called to be, if that's what we're trying to be as this church, this, this people of God here in this place, what, what does it mean? Uh, th- and this morning, we're going to look at the part of that about halfway through that speaks of a growing reliance on the gospel of grace, that we are people together pursuing a growing reliance on the gospel of grace. Now, in one sense, that is what every sermon is about. What does it mean for us as, um, as people together to, to learn to trust Christ more, to rest in him more fully, to look to him in every area of our life, to be transformed by him? What does it mean for us to have a growing reliance on the gospel of grace? Okay, so we talk about that in one sense every week, but we're going to talk about it very deliberately this morning. Uh, let's pray together and let's read this passage and then we'll look at the particular angle of this we're going to talk about today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, um, many of us distracted, many of us confused, many of us hurting, some of us rejoicing. Lord, you know where we all are. We pray that you would meet us this morning in each of those places. And we pray that you would speak the gospel into our lives, that we might grow in our reliance on you, because that is where life is found. Help us to see that. Meet with us by your Spirit, even now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19, again, page 907 in your pew Bible. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 
And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. This passage, I think, very helpfully puts in front of our eyes one aspect of what does it mean for us to be people who are growing in our reliance of the gospel, growing in our reliance on Jesus. There's a lot we could say about that, and we try to every week, but this passage addresses this question, and we're going to ask this question ourselves today. And if, to the degree to which you're able to answer this question honestly and perceptively about your own life, you're going to learn something about yourself. Here's the question. What do you do with your failure? What do you do when you fail? When things don't go right? When you fail badly? What do you actually do with your failure? Okay, in this passage this morning, we're going to see that we never get past our need for God's grace, for the, our need for the restoring, healing work of Jesus in our lives. And we're going to see that through looking at three things about Peter. We're going to look at the failure of Peter, and we're going to look at the intervention of Jesus, and we're, we're going to then see the outflow of the gospel in Peter's life. Okay, first the failure of Peter. If you know the context of this story in John, it's right here at the end of the gospel, then you know that Peter... Uh, has failed, he's failed glaringly, dramatically, spectacularly. Peter has failed. Um, if we go back to the night before Jesus was crucified, this is in John chapter 13, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going away. Okay, he doesn't really spell out exactly what that means for them. They know something 
cataclysmic is coming. And in response, again, John chapter 13, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Okay, Mark, when he tells the story in chapter 14, it, it's even more poignant. He says this, Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, Peter's looking at all the other disciples, even, all the, even though all these sorry people fall away from you, I will not. Jesus looks at him and says, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Strong words from Peter. And what happens next? Well, Peter does exactly what Jesus had said. Later that night, Jesus is hauled away by the religious authorities. And three times that night, Peter is confronted by people milling around outside the trial. You're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? I am not. Three times. Now, all of the male disciples of Jesus, with the possible exception of John, they scatter, they run, they melt into the crowds, they put distance between themselves and Jesus. And no one stands next to Jesus at his trial. No one says effectively, where he goes, I go. I'm with him. Everybody abandons Jesus. Okay, and yet all four Gospels highlight this particular betrayal by Peter. They single him out. The most outspoken of the disciples. The one who seems to have been the most natural leader in some ways among the disciples. And yet not only does Peter fail, he fails big. And he fails spectacularly. And he fails tragically. Okay, Peter fails. And the second thing about it, not only does he fail, that failure has crippled Peter's life. It has stopped him dead in his tracks. And how do we see this in the text? That Peter has gone back to fishing. Okay, the first time Jesus has a fishing expedition with his disciples, it's back in Luke 5. Jesus has been sitting in Peter's boat, the very beginning of Peter knowing Jesus, and he's teaching the crowds. And at the end he tells Peter, who hasn't caught anything all night long, he says, uh, put your boat in deep water and let down your nets. And what happens? They catch so many fish that the nets begin to break. And Peter, at that point, at the very beginning of his interaction with Jesus, knows that Jesus is someone unlike anyone he's ever met. Because he looks at Jesus and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He knows he's in the presence of something he can't even comprehend. And with that, at the very beginning of the ministry, they start this three-year journey with Jesus. They hear him teach. They walk, watch him heal people miraculously. They share life with him. And they begin to do exactly what Jesus said. They begin to follow Jesus' invitation at that first fishing trip where Jesus says, leave your nets, come with me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You will catch men no longer, and no longer fish. And they begin to do that. They begin to get sent out by Jesus and do the same things Jesus did, healing people and teaching they become fellow ministers with Jesus, and their lives are absolutely transformed. But here in our passage, they're back to fishing. We see Peter the fisherman not catching men any longer, but back to catching fish, and he's not even doing that well. Here's the thing about Peter. He hasn't abandoned his faith. Okay, there's nothing sinful about fishing, even if you're Peter. But there's something about this picture of Peter fishing that just doesn't seem to fit. Because, Peter, you've been called to so much more. Where is the power of the ministry that Jesus had entrusted to him? 
that he'd handed on to Peter and the others. Where is the hope that Jesus has been speaking into Peter's life for three years now? Where did all that go? Peter's been sidelined by his failure. And his faith, his, excuse me, his failure has crippled him. And you get the distinct feeling that if there's anything good that's going to come out of these disciples fishing again, abandoning the greatness of this calling seemingly that they've been brought to, if anything good is going to come out of this, then Jesus is going to have to come in and do something transforming in their lives. That's exactly what we see happen. We see the failure of Peter. Second thing, let's look at the intervention of Jesus in Peter's life. As we look through this text... We see four things that Jesus does for Peter. First thing that might stand out to you, well, first, he finds Peter, verse 4. He goes and he finds Peter. Now, as you're reading this passage, that might not stand out to you because maybe the most dramatic thing that stands out is Peter, they figure out that it's Jesus, and Peter, who's been working, then puts on all his clothes and then dives into the water and swims to Jesus. You see this this hasty... uh, dramatic act by Peter to get to Jesus. But what precedes that? Well, Jesus shows up on the shore, appearing at the bank. Peter responds, he swims to Jesus, but only because Jesus showed up first. Jesus, who is the offended party here, the denied Lord, he comes to find Peter, the one who has failed. And you got to understand how shocking this is. Um, even in our, in our world, things don't usually go this way. Okay, let's say, again, back to things like political scandals. Let's say there's a political scandal and a, a politician's staffer has done something drastically wrong. Okay, what happens then? Immediate distancing by the politician, disassociating himself from the failure, usually leaving the offended party out to dry. You certainly don't find that politician showing up early in the morning in the front yard of the one who failed him, coming to him to deal with what's happened. But here we have Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, the Lord of the universe, literally the greatest, most famous, most powerful, most wise, single most important human being who has ever lived. Jesus, standing on the shore, waiting for Peter to come back from a fruitless night of fishing. Jesus, the offended Lord, comes to find Peter. He comes to find him. Now, the second thing he does, not only does he find him, he feeds Peter. Okay, verses 9 through 14. This isn't the first meal they've received from Jesus. We see a lot of meals in the Gospels. We see Jesus taking uh, five loaves and two fish and dividing them and feeding 5,000 people. And with the leftovers, feeding Peter and the rest of the disciples. Just a number of nights before this, we've seen Jesus on the night that he was crucified uh, taking bread and breaking it and handing it out to his disciples. And now here we see Jesus again taking bread, taking fish, and giving them to his broken and failing disciples. Now, if you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry, he was criticized for the people he ate dinner with. Okay, it says, there's, there goes Jesus. He's eating dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes. No respectable person would do that. Jesus puts his reputation on the line to find those who are lost. Jesus says this to his critics. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. And I came to seek and to save the lost. 
Now we have Jesus sharing another meal, not with tax collectors, not with prostitutes, but with men who had fallen asleep when Jesus asked them to stay up and pray. Men who had scattered and fled when the mob seen Jesus seized Jesus. Men who at best had watched from afar while Jesus gets tried by this joke court and sentenced to death. And Peter, who three times said about Jesus, Jesus, I don't know him. And now Jesus feeding them a meal, moving towards them, extending a radical and reconciling hospitality to those who so clearly don't deserve it. He finds them, he feeds them. Third thing he does, and this is kind of the center of the passage, one of the most intriguing things to me, he exposes Peter. Look at the way he interacts with Peter. Look at the dialogue they have. Three times Jesus asks him this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And it should remind us of something. The number three was significant for Peter. Three times he has denied Jesus. Now three times Jesus pointedly asked him the question, do you love me? Three times Peter has told the world, I do not love Jesus. Now Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And the significance of those three askings are not lost on Peter. Look at verse 17. He was grieved. He was brokenhearted because Jesus asked him this. Now here's the question for us. What exactly is going on? What is Jesus doing? Why is he doing it this way? Let me just suggest that the way you answer this question has some profound implications for the way you understand Jesus and his work in your own life. What is Jesus doing right here to Peter? Let me ask it this way. Is Jesus sticking it to Peter? Okay. Is he calling him on the carpet? He's, we all know Jesus is forgiving, but is he taking a shot at the same time? Giving a quick elbow in the gut? It kind of feels like it, doesn't it? Three times he asks him, reminding Peter three times of the worst day of his life. Three times reminding him of his greatest failure ever, his three denials of Jesus. What happened to Jesus in his love? I mean, even the Bible itself gives us a definition of love. Famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to what Paul says. Here's what it means to love, Paul says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And listen to this. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But look at Jesus, seemingly doing the exact opposite of what Paul says. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Peter, let me tell you about your record. So much for love always trusting, always hoping, never failing. What is Jesus doing is he bringing up Peter's failure to condemn him? And the answer is no, he's not. In fact, he's doing exactly the opposite. Jesus is exposing Peter, not in order to condemn him, but in order to heal him, to forgive him, not to heap shame on him, but to free him from the shame that he already feels. Jesus is stepping into the mess, into the failure for Peter's benefit. In fact, it is Jesus' 
gracious gift to Peter. Jesus lays Peter bare in order to heal him. Okay, Jesus could have done what we tend to do with people when they fail us. He could have cut off ties with Jesus, or excuse me, with Peter, or he could have at least marginalized him. A little bit of cold shoulder to let Peter know where he stands now. Or he could have swept the whole thing under the table. That's all in the past now. Let's just not talk about it. Let's agree just to keep it in the background. Let's pretend it never really happened. And that might be your preferred method of dealing with conflict. This was driven home to me a number of years ago when a good friend of mine named Scott came to me and and he had done something to offend me, at least he thought. I can't even remember what it was. But he came to me and said, I did this, I said this, please forgive me. And I said, don't worry about it. I mean, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And he stopped me and he said, no, it matters. I've wronged you and I need you to forgive me. And it just struck me. Did these things matter? He wouldn't let me sweep it under the carpet. Jesus doesn't do either of these things. Doesn't sweep it under the carpet. Doesn't cut off Peter. Instead, he puts Peter's failure right there on the table for both of them to see. But he does it for Peter's good. Three times Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love me? And he puts it on the table. I see this failure. Do you love me? I see this. Do you love me? And he puts it on the table. Peter, I see this. What's he telling telling Peter? He is speaking into Peter's life so that Peter can never look back at this day and think something like this. Did Jesus really know the depths of my betrayal? He knows I failed, but does he know how badly I failed? He moved towards me in forgiveness, but does he really know what he was forgiving me? Jesus gives Peter a gift. He tells Peter, I know exactly what has happened. And I am pursuing you, bringing my forgiveness and healing and love to you in the middle of that glaring failure. You have not pulled the wool over my eyes. I see it all, and we can look at it together because I'm going to bring healing and forgiveness to you in this very thing. He exposes him, and finally he restores Peter. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's telling Peter about his death. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show the kind of death by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Okay, some of you are thinking that he's saying, Peter, you're going to spend the rest of your life in a nursing home. (laughs) You used to dress yourself. One day you're not going to dress yourself. Okay, that's not what he's telling Peter. In the ancient world, when it talked about stretching out your hands, this was a common reference to crucifixion. Okay, early church... The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what did happen to Peter. Early church sources tell us that uh, Peter was martyred, probably under the emperor Nero, and probably before this gospel we're reading was actually written. You may have heard the stories about Peter being crucified upside down. Uh, We we don't know. That source is sort of dubious, but we do, you know, the, the testimony of the early church is that Peter was martyred. So what's Jesus telling him? He says, Peter, here's the word that I have for you this morning. You're going to be killed by Rome just as I was. Okay, now let me ask you this. Is that good news for Peter or is it bad news? 
Peter, you're, you're going to die. Is that good news or bad news? How would you feel if you were Peter hearing that? Fantastic. Think about what this says about the rest of Peter's life. The scene opens up again with Peter fishing, off track, sidelined, crippled by his failure. Okay? He used to be a fisherman and he goes back to it. Well, here's the thing. In the first century, the Romans, cruel as they could be, they just didn't crucify people for fishing. It was not a crucifiable offense. And if Peter had gone back to his life of fishing, had left Jesus in his past, he would have never run afoul of the authorities. He would have never been perceived as any kind of threat. He would never need to be silenced. I think Jesus is actually giving Peter an assurance of his restoration, an assurance of his forgiveness, and an assurance of his embrace of Peter. Because he's telling Peter that he will, in fact, do the thing that Peter thinks he can't do, has failed to do. He says, you will, in fact, lead a faithful life. You will do exactly what I'm telling you to do here. Follow me. You're going to follow me, Peter. Peter's going to spend his life faithfully following Jesus all the way to his death to an end like Jesus's. So I think Peter could hear this and he could hear great hope. He could hear great hope because he had been forgiven by Jesus. And he could have great hope because his feet had been set on this path of faithfully following Jesus. And he could have great hope because though death awaits him, death does not have the final say. Because Jesus, the crucified one, stands before Peter, resurrected, raised to life, given a new life that can no longer be destroyed, a life that never ends. And the same thing waits for Peter. In fact, the same thing waits for all God's people. Life. Indestructible life. Unending life. Okay, how do we apply this? How does this speak to us? There's one other thing we're going to say about Peter and how that affects him in ministry, but let me just ask this. What does it have to say to us? Because a lot of us, honestly, if you're honest, you're thinking this. It is really great to know that if I ever royally mess things up, that Jesus could forgive me even in that. I mean, Peter, glaring failure. And you think, you know, that honestly just has not characterized my life, but it's good to know that I have an ace in the hole. It's good to know that Jesus is there if I ever really need him that badly. See, we don't have much of a category for this kind of story from Peter. Why? Because it's not a conversion story. And Christians, if you're visiting, you should know this. You're going to hear some of the... Christians love conversion stories. Okay? They love stories about how bad people's lives were before they came to know Jesus and how awesome they are now. Okay? Okay? And if you were on drugs, so much the better. <laughs> and the best possible thing is if you were in prison and you came to faith then. Okay, we're laughing because we've heard stories like that. And Jesus does miraculous things to turn people's lives around who are caught up in the worst kinds of darkness. He really does that. But we have a category for that. Jesus comes to people who don't know him that have wandered so far, and he brings them to faith and life. Conversion stories, but we don't have a category for stories like this. Peter wasn't being converted. He knew Jesus, and he failed royally as a Christian. And Jesus was coming to bring restoration in his life in that kind of situation. And frankly, most of us 
don't want that kind of story. And we don't want to own up to the fact that something like this is really true of us. Have we all failed like Jesus did? Have we all done so so incredibly um, boldly, glaringly? You might think, I'm okay with this being part of my pre-conversion days, but not now. So maybe you haven't failed this dramatically. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that there are still holes in your life big enough to drive a car through. There's still that kind of failure and struggle still in your life and still in mine. You might not be denying Jesus while you're warming your hands around a fire as Peter did, but where are the places of denial and failure in your life that, may, that you might just be better at hiding than Peter was? You might be a lot more subtle with it. You're not doing it publicly like Peter did, but there you are locked up in your room, hidden with your secret addiction to pornography. Or there you are, locked in a back corner of the bathroom on your hall, and you're sticking your finger down your throat. Or you find yourself talking to your neighbors about everything under the sun, the grass, the weather, but never giving the slightest hint that you, in fact, are a follower of Jesus, and that that means something. Maybe it's you at home when the guest has gone home, and you're letting your spouse have it, verbally or otherwise, Biting comments to your kids. Snide remark about your boss, your coworker. Maybe you just tightly shut your eyes every time you walk by someone who's in great need. Maybe you find that your token gifts to a mercy fund allow you to distance yourself from any personal involvement in the brokenness of our world. You see, Peter's story is our story. The story of failure of sin, of brokenness in our lives, and our story of the ongoing struggle to follow Jesus. And this story, in fact, Jesus in this story invites us to say, yes, that is me as well. And this story, in fact, Jesus in this story, puts those failures in our lives, those current failures, those post-conversion failures, on the table so that we would see them. And so that we would see that he sees them so that we would know that his forgiveness reaches even that deep, even to us, even in the current mess of our lives. Jesus speaks to us in this. And here's the remarkable thing. The story doesn't end there. Briefly, last thing. If you were trying to get Christianity off the ground, gain adherence, you would stifle a story like this. But instead, all four Gospels highlight it. Peter's outrageous failure. Because somehow the church saw this as a vitally important part of the story to tell. You know, if you're going to start a movement, if you're going to buy TV time, if you're going to put an ad on the internet, are you going to advertise your failures or your successes? But the church holds up Peter. What happens to Peter after he's restored by Jesus? Why does Jesus do this for him? What's the result of this for him? Not just why did Jesus forgive him, but why does he restore him? Why does he restore him to ministry? And the answer is that he brings him back to himself in order that he might send him out to the world around him. Jesus doesn't just forgive him and say, I forgive you, you're going to sit on the bench for the rest of your life, but I'm keeping you on the team. He sends him right back out onto the field in ministry. We tend to think that our failures disqualify us from ministry, from service, from stepping into 
all the callings that this room represents, the callings the Lord puts on our life. We tend to think that if I'm honest about my failures, if anyone saw it, if it came out, it would all disqualify me. But paradoxically, in Peter's life, this failure actually strengthens him for mercy and for ministry as he follows Jesus. Because he now knows a Jesus who really sees him, who really knows him, who really meets him in the real mess of his life and speaks forgiveness and healing to him. If you were to flip over a few pages to the start of the book of Acts, the next time we see Peter in the New Testament, you would see Peter, in the first few days after the Holy Spirit comes, standing before thousands of people, boldly proclaiming the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ because he had tasted it himself. Now you tell me, if you met Peter, would this experience with Jesus make him more understanding, more tender, more patient, more compassionate with you, or less? We know what would happen because Peter had seen Jesus. And the remarkable thing here, Jesus speaks the same thing into our lives, that the very point at which we so desperately need him, to find his healing and forgiveness, is not a thing to hide, but a thing to give thanks for because Jesus now sends us to minister to others. And as we taste this, we'll be a people who know what we're talking about. We won't be talking about the abstract Jesus or simply the distanced theological Jesus, but the Jesus who has stepped into our own lives, becoming more and more a people who are growing in a reliance on the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, you put this story of glaring failure here that we might see the beautiful success of the death and resurrection of Jesus that meets us in our real need, in the very depths of it. May we be a people more and more who are transformed by this gospel. May we be free to own up to what is true about us, that you might step in, find us and feed us, expose us, that you might really restore us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Jesus, Lord of life and glory.